This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. How has the FBI done its job before and since 9-11? Why did it become a domestic intelligence agency? And why does Congress need to rein it in? Former FBI agent Michael German says the agency arbitrarily differentiates between foreign and domestic terrorism. His new book is Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. We spoke earlier this month. When did the FBI turn into a domestic intelligence agency? What was it before? What caused the change? And what does that mean for the agency? Um, so after 9-11, uh, the FBI uh, and the Justice Department and the rest of the, the national security establishment tried to present the intelligence failures as a failure of collection. In other words, that they didn't have information that could have uh, uh predicted or prevented the attacks um, rather than a mismanagement of intelligence. Um, so part of the solution to that, in addition to uh, creating architecture around the mass surveillance and, and uh, more widespread data collection and, and uh, investigative authorities, uh, was relabeling itself. So uh, the FBI said, you know, counterterrorism was its number one mission and law enforcement was no longer the primary function that in order to prevent terrorism, they had to go out and uh, collect information proactively and become a domestic intelligence agency and began referring to themselves as that. And uh, finally, at one point, and I don't remember the year off the top of my head, but actually changed uh changed that in their website where they said the mission of the FBI instead of being a law enforcement agency was to be a national security and domestic intelligence agency. Um, it actually was a, a regression in some ways uh, that uh, uh, often during the FBI's history uh, when there's some kind of national security uh, emergency, uh, the, the FBI uh, works outside of its mandate as a law enforcement agency uh, to gather intelligence against uh, anyone who they perceive as threatening the the status quo, the establishment uh, 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 groups and and uh, economic and and financial uh, powers that be at the time. So that happened at, uh, during World War One. It happened again uh, before and during World War Two, um, and then during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and, and each time, the, the, the way that the agency would reform is by uh, being required to focus on its law enforcement mission. Um, and of course, law enforcement has always had an intelligence component to it. Um, and in fact, when you look at many of the most effective cases where they talk about that as an intelligence success, it's often the criminal justice side of the FBI that, uh, that it was most responsible for for those successes. So you were there, you were in the FBI for, for both phases of it. Right. Um, what were the changes visible to you? So I, I joined the FBI in 1988 after the COINTELPRO abuses had been discovered and reforms had been put in place and felt I was very lucky that we had learned our lessons and, uh, and that I was going to be able to work for the FBI when it was properly focused on protecting the public rather than uh, threatening uh, groups that were just trying to work for social change. Um, uh, and then uh, I left the FBI in 2004 
uh, which gives you some clue as to uh, how quickly it was very obvious that that the FBI was headed in a bad direction. Um, and again, what what troubled me most was that the language uh, of COINTELPRO came back up. The title of the book, uh, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, is is uh, taken from the the COINTELPRO memos that were describing the nature of the activity they wanted agents to engage in when they were targeting the different groups, whether they were civil rights groups or anti-war protesters or others. This idea that they would disrupt them and, and discredit the leaders of these organizations as their mandate uh, rather than uh, investigate people for uh, potential violations of law. And so when I started hearing that language come up, again, uh, I, I grew worried. And you know that, the, so part of the problem was the direction the FBI was headed. But the other part of the problem was I had been working in counterterrorism, mostly domestic or entirely domestic terrorism. Uh, before 9-11, and uh, even as I started uh, being introduced to, to international terrorism work, uh, the problems that were the actual cause of the 9-11 failure uh, were not being fixed uh, because it was, um, instead of addressing the mismanagement of information within the FBI, they were still focused on expanding the FBI's collection. But of course, when you're collecting more information and maintain uh, a, a poorly managed system of, of analyzing and, and utilizing that information, having more is not a benefit. So how does the FBI, uh, and you can tell me if this was true before 9-11, how does the FBI differentiate between domestic and international terrorism? Uh, arbitrarily, uh, it turns out, and, and always have before, before and after. Um, terrorism was when terrorism first became something that the, the FBI was concerned about in modern times was was really post Munich the uh, uh, attack on the Israeli athletes there that uh, that the FBI started saying okay we have to look at this differently than than other kinds of crime and the 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 difficulty they had is in characterizing it and. Uh, you know, certainly when the FBI conducts investigations of people overseas, there's a lot of, of different methodologies they have to use that typically were more used in the FBI's counterintelligence program, their program designed to catch Soviet spies trying to gather information about the United States or to collect information about the Soviets that, that we were uh, in need of. Uh, it had a number of different tools, different from the way criminal investigations worked. Um, so when terrorism came around, kind of parts of it, the the foreign overseas elements seemed like more more like the counterintelligence side. Um, but a lot of the terrorism that occurs in the United States, of course, is uh, done uh, predominantly by Americans. Uh, so they kind of split the baby and. Uh, work that w or uh, terrorism that was uh, uh, done by groups that were inside the United States was considered domestic terrorism and would be treated as a criminal matter, and uh, uh, groups that were operating overseas would be treated as international terrorism uh, and would be treated as a foreign counterintelligence matter. And that was really a lot of what caused the information problems in 9-11, but that gets into a conversation that would take a long time. Um, but the problem with it, it, it was that, that they put 
white supremacist groups in the domestic category, even though white supremacists, white supremacy is not um, at, uh, confined to the United States borders. You know, Americans didn't invent Nazis. Uh, and, and it wouldn't have been a problem if it was just a matter of how the FBI devotes its resources and, you know, just acknowledging that, okay, we have to make some arbitrary distinctions between how we're going to use our resources. But part of the problem in the way the FBI interprets white supremacist violence is that they take that concept that it's a domestic problem uh, and ignore the, the international tentacles to it. And, and it, it makes it difficult for them to actually understand it in a way uh, that, that would make them better prepared to deal with it. And at the same time, by uh, treating uh, uh, predominantly groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS as international groups clouded the way that they work when there are people in the United States who are Muslim, um, but they feel are part of a, any, any Muslim American who's engaged in that uh, kind of conduct, uh, they consider a foreigner, even if they're born and raised in the United States and have never left and have never had any real connection to a foreign group. Uh, so it, it, it muddles uh, understanding of how this problem of terrorist violence can best be solved. So to the extent that the agency has to make these arbitrary distinctions and isn't super upfront about how uh, those distinctions are, are being made, is a lot of that just driven by the federal law or is, it, is this all internal to the FBI with respect to its own policies? Uh, so, so some of it is is directed by federal laws, but those laws are often passed with the lobbying of the FBI to get the laws they think they need because of of the their interpretation of these events. So, it's it's a bit circular. Um, but it part it's it's hard to determine motive, and like anything else, people often have lots of motives for why they do something. I mean, part of why uh, the FBI uh, treats uh, any any I illegal conduct by Muslim Americans in the United States related to any kind of um, terrorism a as an international event is because, or as international terrorism is because that is something that uh, that gets them more resources and and it, uh, is a better argument for expanding their authorities. Okay, so John Mueller here at Cato, he uh, likes to describe what he calls the self-licking ice cream cone. Yes, I, I know John's work very well, and and, and uh, th that is quite a bit of it. And you know, his his book documents that this, you know, the the uh, efforts of the government to amplify the threat. Right? We, I mean, one of the flaws in our system is. The agencies that are supposed to evaluate the threat are the same ones that address it, and the resources they get to address it come from how they characterize the threat. So their incentive is to get more resources by expanding the threat. So when you talk about terrorism, you know it's usually the terrorist group who is trying to inspire fear beyond what their actual capabilities are. Um, but here we have the agencies that are supposed to be counterterrorists who are actually amplifying that public fear because that helps them get uh, more resources and, and uh, personnel and authorities. So a self-licking ice cream cone is a perfect uh, uh, 
uh, description of, of how that works to the detriment of not just the privacy and civil liberties of people and properly targeted, which with mass surveillance includes all of us, but, uh, but also our security, you know, for, for every dollar and man hour spent expanding, uh, uh, investigations against people who aren't doing anything wrong or collecting information and data about people who aren't doing anything wrong uh, ignores what are real threats. So with respect to investigating people who aren't doing anything wrong, uh, you describe uh, what you call a sort of a formal disruption strategy yes. uh, within the FBI. So to the extent that they're applying that strategy to people uh, for whom they have no reasonable uh, belief that criminal activity has occurred. What does that look like, or ha- and how often is it deployed? Um, so, it, the FBI's uh, in 2009, the FBI Counterterrorism Division produced a document called uh, the Baseline Collection Plan. And in addition to uh, describing all the different types of intelligence they expected agents to gather during the course of their investigations, so. In other words, the investigation is no longer just about gathering evidence of criminal activity, but collecting a lot more evidence using the investigation as justification. But uh, in many investigations, particularly with such a low threshold to initiate an investigation, uh, being reduced from a reasonable indication to uh, merely an allegation or sometimes even less than that for assessments, um, they're, they're targeting people as potential terrorists or spies or, or criminals uh, long before, without any evidence to suggest they've actually done anything wrong. Um, and this disruption strategy authorizes agents who can't prove a criminal violation uh, or at least a terrorism or espionage or whatever violation they're investigating to use other means. And among those other means are uh, using informants maybe to provoke some kind of illegal activity uh, using immigration enforcement activities. So if they've investigated somebody and they don't like them for whatever reason, uh, but they don't have any evidence they've broken the law, they still might be able to get them deported or uh, prevent them from getting a, a citizenship or a green card or some other uh, methodology t- that they then claim a statistical accomplishment that I disrupted a terrorist attack by uh, preventing this person who otherwise would have uh, obtained citizenship from obtaining citizenship. It's, it's a really strange process and again harkens back to the COINTELPRO program where the, the FBI's disruption strategy then was to uh, prevent people like Clark Kerr, who was the head of the University of California, from getting a government job. He never knew that the reason he didn't get the jobs that he was put up for was because J. Edgar Hoover didn't like him and made sure that he would not get those government appointments. Um, you know, it's the same kind of authority that can be abused very easily to target people who, who aren't suspects because they've done anything wrong, but are only suspected because the agents or the agency has some bias against them. So what is the standard of evidence that applies when the FBI decides to either begin surveilling or collecting uh, evidence or actually opening an investigation of an American, specifically an American? When I was working before 9-11 and the the rules changed, uh, with the exception of what they called 
limited investigations and preliminary investigations, which are very short in duration. And so, you know, somebody walks into an office and says, hey, I think my neighbor is a drug dealer and, uh, you know, his name's Mike German and he drives a Ford pickup truck and uh, this is where he works. Um, There was what uh, uh, a provision that allowed the FBI agent to take that and look and see that, oh, sure enough, Mike Sherman does live next door to this uh, complainant, that he does drive a Ford pickup truck, and that he does work in the place that this person says. So there's at least some reliability behind this allegation, Um, but you would have to develop that very quickly. That wasn't a six-month investigation to determine those things. Uh, And then there was a preliminary investigation that could go for three months that would specifically for the purpose of determining if you can establish a reasonable indication based on the evidence you could gather in that short time. And then that was it. But now, uh, since 2009, the FBI can do something they call an assessment, which requires no factual predicate. It just requires the FBI agent telling him or herself that they're doing it for a legitimate purpose. So as long as I can tell myself as an agent that my counterterrorism uh, mandate uh, uh, is is being fulfilled by me investigating this person or this group. Um, and, and it's just that self-evaluation that's the only thing required with the individuals themselves, their good conduct doesn't protect them anymore. Um, and and that can last, last initially 30 days uh, just on the agent's initiative, um, but then it only requires a supervisor to authorize 30-day uh, extensions that can last for years. Uh, similarly, a preliminary investigation only requires an allegation, and the FBI agents can make the allegations. So again, very low standard, and that can go for six months, uh, authorizing a, a little more aggressive investigative tools, uh, and then can be reauthorized for two two more six-month periods. So you can be investigated for a year and a half without ever having done anything that would make anybody suspect you. And it's only the full investigation that that requires a reasonable indication of illegal activity or terrorism or spying. With respect to uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and Mm -hmm. warrants that have been uh, achieved by the FBI, specifically with with respect to Carter Page, is, is that something that will get reform of that agency or that that court or uh, is this just one of those areas where people are intensely interested in it only because of the people who are involved and we're not going to worry about all these other people for whom these warrants have been inappropriately uh, given? Um, I, 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 I don't know. And, you know, obviously I hope that it, it sparks some broader reform. Uh, the positive outcome is the inspector general is doing a broader investigation of the FISA process. So I'm hopeful that that will show that this wasn't a one-off problem. I, I mean, part of my concern is that uh, people in the intelligence committees and, and uh, the leaders of these agencies are, are you know, shocked that they're finding gambling in the casino when we know that that uh, the, the FBI agents were found to be regularly providing false information to justify warrants back in the 90s and early 2000s and were admonished by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court judges for that. Um, and then once the Foreign Intelligence 
court was no longer being used to uh, authorize specific warrants for specific individuals, but instead to authorize broad programs of mass surveillance. Uh, they had demanded certain uh, uh, minimization procedures to make sure that, that those programs were run appropriately. And what we know from what has been released from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, that, that those standards were never kept in the multiple programs, the, the, the information provided to them by the Justice Department and the FBI about how these programs were limited was actually false. And uh, so, you know, that we find once again that, that false information was being used to obtain warrants shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And it's just further indication that this process is broken. And so I'm, I'm hoping that because uh, this, it, it, it's astonishing, right? If, if the president, if two people, the two most powerful people in the country running in an election uh, for to, to be the president of the United States can't be protected from FBI interference, uh, who can be? You know, what, what chance does some uh, regular person on the street have if the president of the United States and, and his campaign uh, uh, can't be protected from uh, uh, the misuse of these tools. If somebody running as a candidate can't be protected from the misuse of the information gathered during investigations, can't be protected, the rest of us are in pretty sorry straits. For all the complaints that you hear about the deep state, and I'm putting scare quotes around mm -hmm. that, uh, it doesn't seem as if the FBI is doing anything to combat that perception. Um. It's difficult because, you know, and, and even, you know, I, I'll, I'll blame myself for this, you know, talking about the FBI as if the FBI has one mind, right? Um, uh, you know, what we've seen it, uh, during the, the last couple of years through the 2016 campaign, you know, obviously there were agents who were leaking information that was damaging to Hillary Clinton. You know, obviously the director of the FBI came out and publicly presented information that was damaging uh, from these investigations. Um, and, you know, certainly we know from uh, the information from the internal investigation by the uh, inspector general that there were also agents who weren't very fond of candidate Trump and even less so of President Trump. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that there is one particular thing that they're going after. It's that the rules are so watered down in in what they can do with so little information that anybody can be targeted for any biased purpose and you know obviously for as a civil libertarian my concerns are for the the uh, groups on the fringes of society marginalized groups groups that uh, have no other means to protect themselves and no constituency that can stand up for them and if the again the candidates from the two primary uh, parties can't protect themselves. So those groups will 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 never be able to protect themselves. So it's really incumbent on, you know, part of the title of my book is how the FBI damages democracy. Isn't just that it, it's meddling in the election process, but um, how that that ability to target certain groups are agitating for social change actually damages the ability of of groups to use the legitimate tools uh, uh, our democracy provides to change social policy. 
and and that surveillance and that selective uh, investigation and prosecution uh, tilts the scales in, in one direction or the other. And you know, you look at the FBI, and it's a very white and very male organization that uh, tends to view what protest groups are dangerous through a very narrow prism and uh, ignore threats that actually are much more damaging to our society and that they kill people uh, and, and not take that as seriously. And even a criminal activity that doesn't kill people, you know, high-level white-collar crime uh, did a lot of damage to our society when uh, our financial our economy almost crashed in in 2008 you know that, but that's not seen as the type of criminal activity a national security agency should be focused on Michael German is author of Disrupt Discredit and Divide How the New FBI Damages Democracy subscribe to the Cato Daily podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast 